Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, brought to you by the support of listeners like you. If you value this content and wish to see it continue, become a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review wherever you get your podcasts. Those really help others to find it, which we think is a good thing. Absolutely. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. As usual, we begin with a word of thanks for our supporters, especially Daniel D., Kurt, James M., Michael T., Clancy M., Clancy, thank you for your note. I promise I will respond. It's been crazy. Cyprian C., Jason K., Jacinta B., Michael M., Julie, and Jonathan T., thank you so much, everyone. Absolutely. Thank you sincerely. We are about 33% of the way to the amount of support we need to make this podcast a sustainable thing. So if you've enjoyed these episodes, if you've learned something, if you've been inspired or edified or helped in your faith, please consider becoming a supporter. You can learn about our support tiers at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. The lowest tier is just $5 each month, just $5. But for more each month, you'll get extra perks. Yeah, the $15 level, which gets you a supporter's mug and a lovely sticker, which it really seems to be quite popular right now. So that said, and thank you so much for your support. Let's get on with the show. Today, we're talking about Buffalo Bill Cody, the man who brought the Wild West to the world. He wasn't Catholic for long, but he was Catholic when it counted. Yes, he's another unexpected Catholic. He lived a rough and, in many ways, a thoroughly American life. He was one of the most famous and admired people on the planet in his day. He had it all. Money, women, fame. But they all fell away. And in the end... All he wanted was Jesus. And a priest from the cathedral in Denver was there to bring him to Christ at the last minute. Thank God. Yes. So let's tell his story and set the stage for the dramatic final act. Yeah, nicely played. So William Frederick Cody was born in February 1846 on a farm in Scott County, Iowa Territory. Iowa would become a state in December of that same year, 1846. And the area where Cody was born is known today as the Quad Cities. Cody had at least two sisters, both of whom would play a role in his later life, but honestly, I didn't see evidence of other siblings. They may be there, I just didn't see them. His father, Isaac, was ardently anti-slavery. At one point, he even stood up at an event, spoke strongly against slavery, and he was threatened, but he kept speaking, and he was attacked and stabbed with bowie knives on the stage. He survived that attack, but his wounds would contribute to his death in 1857, when William was just 11 years old. The family suffered financially after this. At 12 years old, William took a job with a freight company as a messenger boy. He would ride on his horse up and down the length of the wagon trains, taking messages from one person to another. Before he was 14 years old, he had signed on with the Scouts. Not the Boy Scouts of America, they wouldn't be founded for almost another, well, actually over another 50 years. We mean those intrepid men who roamed about the wide expanse of the West, mapping rivers, identifying waterholes, and generally learning what there was to know about the great prairie lands and deserts of the untamed frontier. His first experience fighting Indians was while working with the U.S. Army in Utah around 1859. He saw an Indian about to shoot a settler or a soldier, so he took a shot and killed that Indian before he could get his shot off. 
The Civil War started when he was 15 years old. He tried to enlist, but they wouldn't have him due to his youth. Eventually, at 17, he enlisted with the Kansas militia, but more or less kept doing the same thing, riding along with the wagon trains. After the Civil War, he had a series of jobs, including as a rider for the Pony Express, a trapper, bullwhacker, hotel manager, wagon master, stagecoach driver, and gold prospector in present-day Colorado. However, the evidence for most of these jobs is scarce. He may well have claimed them just to, you know, burnish his image at some point. But what is certain is that he worked as a scout for various military and business endeavors after the war as the U.S. military and railroad companies were working to establish forts and railroads through Indian territory across the Wild West. He also got married during this time. He and his wife, Louisa Federici, wed in 1866, and they had four children. Two of them died young, including their only son, Kit Carson Cody, who died at just five years old. He earned his famous nickname, Buffalo Bill, during this time also. In 1867, he got a contract to supply buffalo meat to a railroad company for their workers who were laying track, as well as their railroad crews. Between 1867 and 1868, he is on record as having killed 4,282 buffalo. During that stretch, he entered into a competition with another buffalo hunter, also named Bill, to see who could kill more buffalo within an eight-hour period. The victor would have the exclusive rights to the nickname Buffalo Bill. Cody's opponent killed 48, which, you know, that's, that's, that's impressive. But Cody himself killed 68 in that eight-hour period, and so the title was secure. The legend of Buffalo Bill took on mythical status shortly thereafter. In 1869, when Buffalo Bill Cody was just 23 years old, he met a writer named Ned Bunchline. Bunchline arrived in the Nebraska town where Cody was resting after a battle with Sioux and Cheyenne Indians. Bunchline was actually there to meet Wild Bill Hickok but soon found Buffalo Bill far more interesting. After traveling with Cody for a little while, Buntline would begin a series of sensationalized articles about Cody on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. Shortly thereafter, Buntline wrote a book about Cody, and naturally, it consisted of fantastic embellishments of mostly real events. Just a few years later, 1872, Cody's head would swell even more. This was a remarkable year for him. First, he was picked to be the scout that led General Sheridan, General Custer, and the Grand Duke Alexei of Russia on a much ballyhooed hunting expedition across the Wild West. Then he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his service as a scout. And then, of course, a New York playwright debuted a play about his life and adventures based on Buntline's book. Cody even went to see that play. Yeah, and not to be outdone, Buntline wrote his own play about Cody, in which Cody starred. It's just remarkable. Yeah, he was 26, and by this point, he already had a series of articles, a book, and two plays about his life, starring in one himself, plus a Medal of Honor. Yeah, like I said, just remarkable. I'm trying to think of a parallel sort of a person here in our own day, a person who became, you know, like an international household name by 26 because of, of his adventures and exploits, but who isn't in the military, isn't a movie star, and isn't an athlete. Really, he was a flash of lightning. He was a legitimate scout, but he was one of the last of them. 
So by the time he was working as a scout, the West was a bit more accessible. More people had ventured West. More stories were coming back East. So there was more interest, more of a frame of reference. Yeah. And then there was his own personality. He was a gregarious storyteller and a very outgoing person. In fact, the reception of Buntline's play, The Scouts of the Prairie, is a great example. Critics panned the show and were highly critical of Cody's performance. As himself. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, the critics said he was no good playing himself. Well, what do the critics know? The show sold out night after night on the strength of his name, his legend, and, well, his dashing good looks. So, the legend grew. Over the next decade, from age 27 through 37, he more or less dedicated himself to show business. He went from one successful show to another, bringing in elements and other people, including, for a short time, Wild Bill Hickok. But Hickok was not comfortable on the stage and was dismissed after he fired at a spotlight when it turned on him. (laughs) That would do it. Yeah. But... Buffalo Bill loved it. As you can tell when he sings, there's no business like show business. And and you get your gun, of course. Mm -hmm. By 1883, he had a whole new idea. Buffalo Bill's Wild West. This new show concept was a combination of the scripted episodes that he'd been presenting on stage with the new traveling circus concept that P.T. Barnum had made profitable by this point. This show would travel around and bring demonstrations of things we see nowadays at rodeos, plus reenactments of battles, plus feats of horse riding and sharpshooting skill, and more. It was a real spectacle, especially for those who had no experience of the West or of the skills necessary to survive out there. And this, more or less, became his life's work from then on. He did return to the frontier life for a time in 1876, but his exploits during that time only served to cement his legend as a showman who was also a remarkable frontiersman. So his Wild West show expanded over the years, and in the late 1880s, the opportunity came to take it international. And this is where the first obvious interaction with Catholicism comes in. Hmm. I, along with our listeners, I'm sure, was beginning to wonder when the Catholicism might show up. Yeah. Like we said, he became a Catholic the day before he died. And he was 70 when he died. So that leaves a whole lot of life before that sad day. Or happy day, if you talk about his baptism. But here's how the first known interaction came about. Buffalo Bill took this remarkable show across the pond in 1887, 1889, 1890, and in a few later years. The show stopped in Ireland, England, Austria-Hungary, Germany, the Netherlands, and many other places on the European continent. Shows routinely sold out, and everyone was talking about it. Queen Victoria, the future King Edward VII, Kaiser Wilhelm, and many other members of European royal families enjoyed the show and made a point of meeting the man behind it. Everyone was amazed by the depiction of life in the wild American West. Buffalo Bill, to put it mildly, was a sensation. Normally, tourists went to Europe hoping to catch a glimpse of royalty, perhaps even the monarch. In Bill's case, the monarchs were making a point of meeting with him. When he went to Italy... Because it was Italy by this point, the Papal States were dead and the forces of the Kingdom of Italy had taken Rome, he staged his show outside of Rome. He wanted to stage it in the Colosseum, but was shocked by its condition and knew he couldn't do it there. 
It's too bad. Yeah, it really is. But while in Rome, he and his crew requested an audience with the Pope. It was Leo XIII at this point. But they were initially denied. The Pope's people said their entourage was just too big. But eventually, Pope Leo did receive a smaller group, and an odd sight ensued. There, Entering amid the Renaissance frescoes of Michelangelo and Raphael was a troop of Native Americans in their traditional garb, headdresses, and paint, with Colonel Cody among them cutting a dashing figure. The Pope addressed the assemblage, and the Native Americans greeted him with traditional shouts and whoops and chants of respectful greeting. Then they prostrated themselves for the blessing before rising and issuing further shouts and whoops and calls. Pope Leo reportedly paled initially, but smiled wryly eventually. We must note that most of the Native Americans in attendance were actually Catholic. They and their tribes had been evangelized and baptized by Jesuits, especially by Pierre-Jean de Smet, the great apostle of the plains. So it turns out Buffalo Bill was surrounded by Catholics all the time, even if he didn't acknowledge it. And for Leo XIII's part, he was the same pope who eventually issued both Longinqua Oceani and Testum Benevolentiae, two very important documents in the on the church in America, which we will talk about at a future date. Leo XIII was not unaware of the American situation in principle, but this demonstration from rather unrefined American Catholics may have been more than he was expecting. At any rate, Buffalo Bill gave the Pope presents of flowers, especially a cushion of flowers that presented the Pope's coat of arms. The Pope, for his part, gave Buffalo Bill rosaries and medals. And he would need them as, as his life progressed. He was at the pinnacle of stardom. He was among the most famous people on earth, but his personal life was of turmoil and difficulty. As you said before, two of his children died young. Also, the many rumors of his infidelities hurt his wife, Louisa. The marriage became very strained. But divorce was not easy to get in those days. It carried social stigma, a stigma that his dashing but essentially wholesome public persona could not bear. In the early part of the 1900s, he attempted to divorce Louisa quietly, actually for the second time. The first time had obviously failed. They had remained together, but their life was uneasy between the trauma of their children's deaths and his rising celebrity, time on the road, and his dashing good looks. The rumors of his womanizing abounded whether or not they were founded, but his first attempt to divorce Louisa remained quiet. The second time, his intentions got out to the press, and the shame came with it. He went from being a universally beloved character to one of mixed character. Louisa was a universally sympathetic character. No need to get into the details of the divorce claims, but it wasn't pleasant. At the end, his divorce was not approved. The judge sided with Louisa. Bill was not thrilled, but within a year or so, he and Louisa had reconciled. Imagine that. And they remained together for the remaining 12 years of Bill's life. But those years weren't filled with ease and comfort. No. As the second decade of the 1900s came, financial and legal troubles saw him lose control of his Wild West show. He continued working in show business. He and some partners launched a few other shows, but none was the sensation of the Wild West. His time in the sun had passed. He was nearing his 70s, and his energy to put on the spectacles of his youth was gone. But one thing he definitely gained was a more adult approach to Christianity. 
Right. He had never been an atheist or even agnostic. He had never been that passionate about God and true religion one way or another to that point. He had just been ambivalent for so many years. He had had contact with Christianity from his mother, who was some sort of Christian. He had been baptized in a way, but it's not clear if it was Trinitarian, and he certainly didn't regard it as anything noteworthy. His only real time spent with the Bible was a time when he was young and laid up for about 30 days with a broken leg. Very Ignatian, frankly. <laughs> I know, right? But his was a slow burning conversion rather than that major moment that St. Ignatius had. Yeah, yeah. So he knew a thing or two about Christ, but not much at all about the church. But then in his 59th year, he finally began to acknowledge his need for God. Yes, Bill had remained in contact with his beloved sister, Julia, during this time. And Julia was a devoted Christian, not Catholic, but Christian. Julia had been inviting her brother to become more fully Christian for years. In 1905, as his divorce battle was raging, he seemed to have had a spiritual awakening. It may have been the death of his eldest child, Arta, and his wife's desire to remain with him and reconcile that softened him up. But in 1905, he wrote to his sister that he wanted to live a good life and do the right thing, essentially, but that he could not become Christian because he knew too many Christians who were hypocrites. Well, not exactly the best reason, but it's the one he used. Right. He did close that particular letter saying, quote, If I am too wicked to pray to God, I will ask my angel mother and children who are in heaven to speak a good word for me to God. Yeah, and it seems they did. I know, right? Also in 1905, he wrote to his sister Julia, quote, And it's in my old age I have found God and realize how easy it is to abandon sin and serve him. When one stops to think how little they have to give up to serve God, it is a wonder so many more don't do it. A person only has to do right. Through this knowledge, I have quit drinking entirely and quit doing rash things simply by controlling my passions and temper when I find myself getting angry. Now, this was no small thing. The legend of Buffalo Bill was of a hard-drinking man and a man with a strong passion and short temper. But it should be noted that he always stopped drinking entirely during the seasons when his show was in session. He knew that he had to be on top of things, and if he didn't hold back from the drink, how could he expect his cast and crew to hold back? So he did, and many of them did after his example. But after 1905, he gave up drinking entirely. In a 1906 letter to Julia, he wrote that he tolerated no swearing or drinking in my company since I got good. And so it was for his declining years. In 1914, he wrote another letter to Julia in which he insisted that he was still, quote, trying to live on earth as God would be pleased to have me live. I slip up sometimes, then I ask God's forgiveness. How very Catholic. No, he's... Seems like he was on his way. Boy, howdy. In January 1917, he was staying in the Denver home of his other sister, Mary Decker, when his health took a decided turn for the worse, and it was clear the end was near. Doctors were in attendance, and morphine was employed to manage the pain. But his death would not be without the aid of the sacraments. According to an article published in the Denver Catholic Register on January 11, 1917, close friends of Cody's, Mr. and Mrs. Harrington, learned that Cody was close to death. Mrs. Harrington asked Louisa if Bill had ever been baptized. 
Through the morphine, Bill indicated that he had not been, whether because he didn't believe his infant baptism counted or he just didn't know what it all meant. Louisa acknowledged the goodness of getting him baptized and insisted that Mrs. Harrington summon a Catholic priest. Louisa waited until Bill was free of the influence of morphine and asked him if this was his desire, and he said that it was. So... Father Christopher Walsh, an associate at the cathedral in Denver, was called in. Now, in a great twist of fate, Father Walsh had seen Buffalo Bill's Wild West when he was a boy in Ireland and had grown up wanting to be just like Buffalo Bill. What a moment for Father Walsh. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Father Walsh came, but the doctors had just administered some morphine, so he insisted that he would wait until Bill was conscious and free of the influence of morphine to administer the sacrament. At last, at about 5 p.m. on January 9th, he was called back and was able to see Buffalo Bill. He asked Bill the appropriate questions, what he sought from the church, whether he knew what baptism meant, etc. And then, when he was satisfied that Bill was freely requesting baptism, he baptized William Frederick Cody and administered all appropriate sacraments. The next day, January 10th, just after 12 o'clock noon, Buffalo Bill Cody died. Now, it must be noted his funeral was a fully Masonic ceremony. He had been a Freemason most of his life, and his family was not Catholic, so they would not have known or insisted upon a Catholic burial, but Buffalo Bill can't be blamed for that. What we will celebrate is that Buffalo Bill Cody, one of the most famous people of his day, one of the men most responsible for popularizing and spreading the legend of the Wild West, in the end found Christ and his church. This has been American Catholic History. If you enjoy American Catholic history, please become a supporter. We've got great perks for supporters, including exclusive content, books, mugs, and personal conversations. Get information on how to become a supporter and the perks at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Buffalo Bill Cody, see about our pilgrimages like our upcoming pilgrimage in August to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, and find other episodes that you might be interested in. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory. On Instagram at ACH underscore podcast. Or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History Made Possible by listeners like you.